Welcome to another edition of GDN's Talking Comics interview. On today's show, we have the pleasure of speaking to talented creator and philanthropist Edgardo Miranda Rodriguez. Edgardo is working with Zoop on a campaign for the Labyrinth Kynia Volume 1 Omnibus, a hardcover collection of the graphic novels he created starting in 2016 that includes some bonus features. Today, we are going to talk to Edgardo about his creative history, his cause, and of course the new Zoop campaign. Now here's your host, Martin Sexton. Welcome to another edition of GVN's Talking Comics. I am your host, Martin, and today we have the pleasure of speaking to not only a talented creator, but a man who has put his talents to work by promoting and cultivating the culture and history of Puerto Rico and its people, Edgardo Miranda Rodriguez. Soon, Edgardo is continuing his work with a Zoop campaign for the Bowling Kenyo Volume 1 Omnibus, a collection of graphic novels he created started in 2016, along with some added bonus features. Today, we're going to talk to Edgardo about his creative history, his cause, and of course, his new Zoop campaign. So let's welcome Edgardo Miranda Rodriguez to GVN's Talking Comics. Thanks for joining us today, Edgardo. How are we doing today? Doing well, Martin. I've had uh, two cups of coffee, so I am hype. <laughs> well, all right. I, I had one. That's all I can swing. But uh, of course, my, co my coffee is more like chocolate with a coffee chaser. So that's how that works. <laughs> okay. Oh, so this is since this is the first time I've had an opportunity to talk to you. Uh, and because you've accomplished so much, I want to get a little bit of, into your creative background. So when did you take an interest in graphic design and comics, for, you know, for that matter? And whose work motivated you to pursue that uh, avenue of creation? I've been a graphic designer for 30 years. Um, professionally speaking, I actually started my design studio just over 20 years ago. The design studio is, is Somo Salte. I have clients like Marvel, uh, Sony Entertainment, Atlantic Records, and institutions like Columbia University and various nonprofits and schools throughout New York City. I evolved into the space of graphic novel production and even working with uh, comic book art, sequential art, about 16 years ago um, via one of my clients, the Caribbean Cultural Center, when I started curating art exhibitions. This actually gave me the opportunity to work directly with creators, with artists, with collectors, so that I could not only curate but also design. As a graphic designer, I would literally take thumbnails for these many pieces that would be part of this final exhibition, design it using part of the Adobe suite, uh, Adobe Illustrator or Adobe Photoshop, working to scale with the walls. And one of the approaches to my design for these exhibitions was embracing the reality that original sequential artwork is black and white. And many people who come to see sequential art uh, if you're not an avid collector, you're not always aware of that. Many people associate comic book art as full color artwork with dialogue bubbles. Uh, the reality is dialogue bubbles and color are applied digitally. Um, typically, original art is done by hand with pencils and inks, right? And so the exhibition kind of like to add to the full color experience of a comic book, I applied murals to the walls. So these exhibitions included art from Gene Colan, um, uh, Sean Martin Bro, Dennis Calero, um, Koi Pham, um, John Ramita Jr. 
And then I did a full exhibition for Joe Quesada. It was actually his first solo art show. And that was um, based on his run, uh, the, well, rather the limited series, Dead Devil Father, where he did his first and Marvel's first all Latin superhero team, the Santarians. So these exhibitions kind of like created a, a blueprint for me um, for creating art that applied my background in graphic design and also my love for sequential storytelling. Honestly speaking, it was unprecedented for me. I really didn't see anyone that gave me direct inspiration. I didn't visit exhibitions either at private galleries or museums that left me with this indelible impression like I want to emulate that. I want my shows to resonate. Like Honestly, in the space of sequential comic book art, there really isn't a space that celebrates the artist. You know, this is a commercial art form. It's produced on a deadline-driven um, system, and the art finds itself mostly in the hands of agents that can get it to the hands of collectors. And those collectors, unless they speak to one another, a mainstream audience doesn't even know that they exist because many of them keep their collections and knowledge of their collections private. And uh, I was able to kind of like broker relationships with many collectors and agents um, from Nick Petratus to Albert Moy, engaging them in a level of trust. And since I had a, a viable and legitimate studio, well, I had my own insurance policy and I worked with, with um, galleries and institutions that also had insurance policies. And this was always a big thing for collectors and agents. It's like, is, is the artwork going to be insured? Um, right. and will it be produced by someone who understands what mylar is, what archival um, glass is, what um, um, climate control is for space. Um, and I understood all of this. And therefore I kind of like created a bar for this, you know, and uh, you know, it was, it was covered extensively by the New York Times because no one had ever put together exhibitions like that. You know, nowadays it's so common, you know, and a, a colleague of mine, Patrick Reed, curated an exhibition that's touring nationally for Marvel, um, which is an exhibition um, focused on Spider-Man. And this has been literally, I think it opened at, at San Diego's first um, official opening of their Comic-Con Museum. And now it's presently at Kansas City. What I was doing back in uh, 2007 and in 2009, respectively, had never been done before. And that honestly created for me, on my own terms, and my entry point into the professional world of comic book storytelling and production, because I created a space that legitimized me as a professional, but in a way that was completely unique. They, prior to me, was not this kind of like scene or even community of curators, only agents and collectors. And this was a space that really validated the artists, the collectors, the agents, in a, in a way that truly spoke to this love of this art form that had never been done before. I, one collector literally gave us permission to exhibit unseen art by Billy Graham. And if you're not familiar with Billy Graham, he was one of, if not the first African-American to draw for Marvel. Um, an artist who was part of this kind of like 70s Harlem Renaissance and, and it's himself was a Renaissance man because not only did he illustrate um, Luke Cage, but aside from his work at Marvel, he was very well known in the theater community in New York City. 
as a performer and as an active participant in this scene. These exhibitions gave us access to art that was pretty much hidden in the collection of many artists. And you know, to this day, I have a great relationship with, with, uh, with collector Nick Catradis, who is an avid collector of everything from John Cassidy to Salbashima to Billy Graham. Yeah, good. And so uh, th these were just these are exhibitions. These weren't like uh, things for sale. They were just things no. for people to view. Correct. Correct. Because they were hosted at the Caribbean Cultural Center at gallery exhibition spaces. So not necessarily private galleries. And when you create these exhibitions in the space of, um, well, educational purpose and cultural purposes, there isn't this looming pressure of selling. Um, right. In the private gallery world, these exhibitions typically would last about a few weeks. And quite honestly, I'm not too well aware, but to my knowledge, there might not be an actual scene of private galleries. I'm acquainted with um, Vincent um, Zerzullo of Metropolis Collectibles. To my knowledge, he's one, if not the only, um, private agencies uh, that represent artists and collections that actually also has a gallery space in, in New York City. Typically, this kind of gallery space for art is relegated to the fine art world. And, you know, the, the fine art community, well, they don't actually look at sequential art as art, like we right. do. Right, so, and that actually was a thing way, you know, that's probably why most of my comic books got thrown away by my sister who didn't think it was anything but trash. Uh, and of course, this, this was just the comic books themselves, not the original art. Okay, so let's go back a little bit. Uh, when you, you came out of high school, you got a scholarship to Colgate. And it was there that you started kind of to embrace social activism. Uh, was in those early days what inspired your passion to try to make a difference, even you know, in your early college days? Honestly, it was reading comics. You know, I I grew up reading comic books. It was something that was always um, speaking to me in a way that no other art form, no other literature um, spoke to me. Um, these are narratives that have always embraced social justice. These are narratives and protagonists that have always faced insurmountable odds, as the cliche would say, right? And uh, I, I literally have this image of Spider-Man pushing uh, debris that is covering him that was drawn by Steve Ditko, this kind of iconic image that was actually recreated in um, a few of the live action films, right? This kind of like metaphoric image was kind of like something that was always connected to the storyline. So if I marched on the streets uh, for social justice issues, Immediately after, I would go to the comic shop and pick up some comics that really validated it. I had recently had a great conversation with one of my heroes, um, Chris Claremont, um, about this. And he really validated this for me because he, he spoke to the reality that he really didn't feel that there could be a disconnect between these stories, these characters, and the real world around them, the atrocities of injustices, of, of bigotry, of, of ailments, of society ills that are affecting the dis disenfranchised, the, the underprivileged. And although much of his storytelling was centered um, around narratives that were metaphoric, you know, and for example, the legacy virus, obviously to me, that, that was the AIDS virus. Um, the anti-mutant movement, well, that could be anything from anti-trans, anti-gay, uh, anti-black, uh, anti et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, fill in the blank, right? Um, so these stories kind of like validated me. You know, I grew up in marginalized communities in New York City. I grew up a uh, part of a poor family, not even working class. We were poor. 
Um, by the age of 18, I lived in 22 different places. I survived arson. Many of the homes that I lived in in, in New York City were uh, victim to this kind of a easy out that landlord, corrupt landlords had to kind of claim insurance because they didn't want to have black and brown um, tenants in their, um, in their um, tenements. And so this was part of my experience. And as a precocious child who was always on the honor roll, I was always well aware of the inequities. I was always well aware that things just didn't add up. And as a young man, this always resonated. I recall as a high school student when I lived in, in Syracuse, New York, as an independent study, I decided to do research and write papers on apartheid in South Africa. And I learned about um, Nelson Mandela and, and I learned how the arts in that time really helped to amplify the, the struggle of South Africans um, through Little Stevie's organization of this collective of musicians called Sun, um, um, Artists United Against Sun City. And then you had charitable efforts like Bab Geldof who raised money for um, families that were starving in, in Ethiopia. I saw the connection that art had to not only raise awareness, but to truly spark um, philanthropic work. And that's kind of what kind of like has led me to my own very unique approach to um, um, graphic novel production and, and comic book storytelling that to me, organically, it connects to real issues. And it, in my, at my age, I feel that I can be more, more impactful if my activism is directly linked to um, philanthropic work. Excellent. Okay, now you had mentioned a little earlier about, uh, you know, the work that you had done with Joe Quesada. Uh, how did that meeting come across? I used to love reading Wizard Magazine. That to me was like what uh, Ad Week was for ad agencies, what uh, <laughs> Rolling, Rolling Stone or Billboard is to the music industry. But as a fan, even though I wasn't actually producing comic books, you know, Wizard Magazine at that time was the only periodical that really had a comprehensive look on everything from collecting to reading to reporting. And they were reporting on this project that Joe Quesada was developing. He was about to um, write and illustrate his own um, miniseries, Daredevil Father. And I was on the train, literally, on my way up to um, meet with my clients at the Caribbean Cultural Center, who at the time had a gallery space in um, Columbus Circle. And as I would in many other days, I would always have my copy of Wizard or any other graphic novels or comic books on me, and I'd read them on the train ride from Brooklyn to Manhattan. And there it was. And it just so happens that um, Dr. Marta Moreno Vega, who is the founder and president, well, former president of the Caribbean Cultural Center, and a professor at NYU is also an ordained and practicing Yoruba priestess. Yoruba is referring to the West African um, religions, which carried across the Atlantic Ocean, have been uh, interpreted by very, very uh, um, various Caribbean islands as either Santeria or Voodoo or Espiritismo under various names. Um, Joe, I uh, had been connected with because I was also a freelance journalist. And I had interviewed Joe Quesada and I had interviewed Axel Alonso. So, and at the time, this is what many people may not understand that pre-Disney, you could literally go to the masthead of a, a Marvel Comics 
and literally call that 212 New York City number and literally be patched directly to anyone you asked for because there was no corporate structure that existed. As Axel Alonso said it himself, this was literally a mom and pop shop that they ran. So I literally I was working as a freelance writer and wrote, uh, literally called Marvel. Yeah, I'd like to speak to Joe Casada. Hold on, please. That easy. <laughs> Man, that, <laughs> like, that, that does not happen now. <laughs> no, no, sir. And, uh, you know, I pitched the idea and the story to him and uh, he invited me in to his uh, um, um, office. And so at that point, I had a pre-established um, connection relationship with him. So when I saw this um, write up about his project, I asked my um, client and mentor, Dr. Marta Manuro Vega, hey, this guy's working on a comic book series about Santeria. I think we should check this out to kind of see that. And, and quite honestly, we wanted to make sure that he was doing something um, authentic and it wasn't going to be something exploitational or, or you, know, God, you know, God forbid, something that would be an incredibly negative portrayal of, of this religion. And, you know, it turned out to be quite the opposite. You know, Joe welcomed us in. Uh, we had a meeting, the three of us at his offices. And he actually saw this meeting as an opportunity because he still had not completed the script for Daredevil Father. He shared with us that his, uh, and at the time, many people may not know this, but what truly inspired him to write Daredevil Father was the recent loss of his father. At this point, um, Joe was an orphan. I mean, he's an adult, but he was an orphan. He had lost his mother and his father. Shared with us that his mother uh, was a practitioner of Santeria, that as a child growing up in Queens, she would take him to the beach. And she would sing to him songs about Yemaya, who is the deity the, um, dedicated to the, the seas. And this always stayed with him. And this project, Daredevil Father, was a, an homage, an homenaje to his parents. And so he asked Dr. Marta Manuro Vega if, he, if she could provide him some guidance, because one of the characters that he created, all of the characters that he created were based on the Orisha, the different um, deities of Santeria. But he wanted a, a, an authentic prayer to kind of connect to the story of one of his characters, El Egua. And Dr. Marta Moro Vega provided that for him. He was so grateful. And this conversation was just happening so organically. I, I saw an opportunity. At that point, I had curated exhibitions, but not, nothing um, in comics. So I, I just looked at this as an opportunity. And I said, hey, Joe, um, what if we did an art exhibition about this project. He was like, what? I've never had a solo art show. And Marta immediately loved the idea. She gave us the budget. Marvel gave us complete access um, and permission to use art and imagery. Joe literally opened up his, his collection at the time. His agent, Spencer Beck, had most of his original art. And that would also be my introduction to this world of comic book collecting art, sequential art agents. And we did a completely comprehensive exhibition on his work uh, from, from that series. So that was actually kind of like how that started. And to this day, I literally still have Joe's um, cell number every, every time of the year. I wish him, I text him a happy birthday or a happy Father's Day, you know? And uh, I'm very fortunate that through the course of my career, I've been connected to so many incredibly talented and successful um, creators who I still have uh, to an extent, a level of access to. And it's also, again, it's many times I've heard, it's the lesson of you don't know what can be done unless you ask. I mean, you could have been intimidated and say, okay, I'm not, you know, I'd like to do this, but I'm not going to ask Joe about this. But you you went for it and, and, and it came to pass. So, Martin, uh, Martin, my philosophy, my wife will tell you this. I, I, it's literally like my mantra. It's very simple. Let them say no. 
That's it. Let them right. say no. You just we had we had a meeting this morning about about some ideas that I had that I was going to pitch, and she you know she gave her her, her insightful commentary that and, and and she she's very grounded and she's she was sharing that you know I don't know if this is really going to go anywhere, but you know what? Like you always say, let them say no. And a lot of times these projects and these opportunities happen because somebody on the other side of that question or request, they can just go, yeah, why not? Yeah. Let's <laughs> say, I, I, I say, and it's what I learned, you know, like I said, I've been with uh, Geek Bites now for almost five years. And of course, I'm, I'm over 60, so I started late. Uh, I was intimidated to ask anybody for anything. And that's what my editor team chief said. Oh, it's the worst I could tell you is no. Yeah. And it's not like it's going to leave a wound. You're going to be fine. Uh, uh, I always and, tell my sons, no one's going to stand on their chair or stand on a desk and go, no. Nah. <laughs> <Right. laughs> that's only in cartoons that that happens. They'll just go, nah, I don't think so. That's yeah. it. <laughs> that's and hard. more often than not, they say yes. So it's yeah. all good. Okay. So let's get into the main reason that I'm talking with you today, which is, of course, your uh, partnership with the good folks at Zoop uh, for the the Bolin Kenyo Volume 1 Omnibus. Uh, for people who are not familiar with the character, could you give us a sort of a background of what the character is about and her powers and uh, pretty, pretty much what the, her story is about? So La Bolin Kenya is an original character that I created in 2016 when I started self-publishing this series through my studio, Somos Salte. Her alter ego, Marisol Rios de la Luz, is a Puerto Rican college student who lives here in Brooklyn. And uh, to study abroad, she moves to Puerto Rico to live with her grandparents. She also is really there to kind of like look out for them as well, because they're retired. But like most families with um, older members, retirement is just kind of like a phrase or transition to another job or another project. And they're running a cafe. So she ends up running this this cafe with them. While she's in Puerto Rico, she continues her undergraduate studies as an independent uh, studies uh, student because the university system reflecting the reality is suffering a lot of incredible budget cuts, millions of dollars in budget cuts. So as a visiting student, well, she's not a priority for the University of Puerto Rico. Their priority are actually to their full matriculated students, not visiting students, particularly one who's coming from New York City from an Ivy League school. So she sets up an independent studies to explore caves in Puerto Rico. Upon discovering uh, these various caves, she finds these ancient crystals. These crystals, when, when they come together, form a star, opening a portal which connects her to the goddess of Puerto Rico. The indigenous people of Puerto Rico were the Taino, the original name of Puerto Rico, because Puerto Rico is actually Spanish for rich port, a name that was given, it to, given, given by the Spaniards, which colonized Puerto Rico. The Tainos, the indigenous people of, of Puerto Rico and also the greater Antilles Islands, referred to Puerto Rico as Borinquen. That's actually where Borinquenia comes from because the national anthem is a variation of the word Borinquen, La Borinquenia, or the Puerto Rican woman. This mother goddess, Atavex, connects Marisol to other deities. In Taino language, those are referred to as the semis. The semis represent elemental forces in um, for, for, these, for, for the Tainos, uh, elemental forces that, that are connected to hurricanes, uh, the seas uh, that are connected to land and earth. And so these semis uh, imbue La Borinquena with superpowers. The ability to flight comes from her manipulation of weather. The uh, superhuman strength comes from the seas and the mountains. She can actually, man actually manipulate uh, the earth. And the portals that she opens with her stars don't necessarily serve as an opportunity for her to travel to other dimensions necessarily. 
but allows her to communicate with the goddesses and gods of the Tainos of Puerto Rico. It also works as a form of, as a storytelling um, device for me because I've written that it allows her to see the past. She doesn't travel to the past. She doesn't engage with anything, so she can't change anything. But it's kind of like wearing VR goggles. She can see mm -hmm. stuff, but she's not actually participating in this. And it gives me as a, as, a, as, a, as a writer an opportunity to connect readers to historical moments that honestly doesn't ha don't have any actual visual connections to. So as a storyteller, I take liberties with this and kind of like interpret history through, you know, a kind of a historical fiction. So I refer to this style of writing that I've uh, been doing for the last seven years as uh, historical, uh, speculative historical fiction. Right, it's kind of like a, a mixture of sci-fi and historical fiction and, and superhero storytelling. And those of us who love and understand and have been reading um, superhero comics for decades really know that at its core, it's sci-fi. Right. right. So now, uh, around the same time when you did your first issue, uh, you had did a book uh, with Marvel and uh, with Daryl McDaniel's uh, for Guardians of the Infinity uh, that included a character named Abuela Estela that you that you created. Did that did that character or the fans' reaction to that character influence any in your creation of uh, the Benny Kenya? Actually, it did. I'm glad that you caught that. Not many people make that connection. You see, the response immediately of that story, particularly of that character, who uh, quite honestly was created again as a storytelling device. She was able to be that character that was able to, well, allow more um, exposition on the this theory, this idea that there may be another origin for Groot, right? Uh, we all who follow comics well may know that Groot comes from planet X and he's part of a larger species of extraterrestrial tree-like creatures. Um, the theory that I kind of incorporated and is actually now part of Marvel canon is that, well, perhaps he's also connected to these ancient trees that have been in Puerto Rico for centuries, the Ceiba, which is actually a tree that's also prominent throughout Latin America and West Africa. But this character of uh, Abuela Estela was literally the voice who provided that to the story because there wouldn't really be a context. And then I literally added my older son into the Marvel Universe. So she has a conversation with her grandson, Kian. And in this conversation, it's just, it's just literally just two or three panels where she has this conversation with him. But that was enough to be picked up by media outlets here across the United States and in Puerto Rico. And before I knew it, I was being celebrated and um, recognized as a Marvel writer, as a pro, as if I were some prolific um, creator that's been connected to this publishing company for some time. And I immediately was uh, uh, kind of like taken aback uh, because I just wrote a short story for an anthology series and <laughs> there was no ongoing series. I didn't have a, a, a long-standing relationship with Marvel as a writer. I did as a, as a curator and an art exhibition um, designer. So this was an opportunity I saw that I really had to take. And so the idea of La Borinquena existed, but never really had an outlet or more so never really had a launch pad. And I saw this as this is the launch pad. This is the opportunity. So I was able to take the buzz that was generated from this one story that I wrote for Marvel, and I was able to kind of like pivot that and redirect it towards the launch of La Borinquena, which honestly has been 
much more um, impactful in my career and in terms of the, in the space of storytelling and philanthropy beyond whatever I would have done with, um, with Marvel at the time. Basically because this is my intellectual property, uh, this, and, and well, that's, that's a lot. Well, many people may not understand when you own your intellectual property, you can decide which direction the project takes. There's no editorial team or, or board of directors that you have to cater to. Um, I can decide what kind of partnerships, collaborations, licensing events, etc. I can actually align myself with. I could also decide what issues or causes this project has to align myself. For the brief time that I worked with Marvel, everything had to run by them. Whether it was interviews, whether it was appearances, whether it was anything to do with their characters, anything and everything had to run by them. This is not excluding um, Comic-Cons. Comic-Cons kind of like are exist in this very unique space where artists are allowed to kind of like exhibit and sell pinups of, of you know, ca characters they don't own. But outside of that space, there are limitations to what you can do. It's kind of like this little box that you kind of like pushed into. And you have to respect that. You know, these are not your character. You may add your um, flavor um, to this character for a brief time, but at the end of the day, you know, there's a history and there will be other um, creators soon after you that will continue to add to the canon of these many characters. They say, and it's funny you said that because uh, at Comic-Con a few years back, Neil Adams was talking about Batman. He said that you can do whatever you want with Batman, but you have to put him back the way you found him because he's not yours. Yeah. <laughs> and that's pretty like much that. how that works. I like uh, that. That's true. Right. I love that last part. You got to put him back where you found him because he's not yeah. yours. <laughs> spoken, um, like so, a true, spoken like the true patriarch of comics that he was. May he rest yeah. in peace. Yes, very much so. Okay, so uh, for for the project, you know, you have uh, a number of talented artists. You know, you got Angel Jesus Colon uh, doing a new cover for you. Uh, Will Rosado, who I think we worked on the original book. Christopher Sotomayor is also involved. Uh, so how did those collaborations come about as far as your artists go? And do you have any other contributors for your new, for your campaign that are also doing something for you? We do have some things that we're working on. We haven't um, been able to... Um, formally announced it yet because we just haven't received the physical art. So I don't want to like say, you know, artist X is contributing <laughs> this and then artist X doesn't fulfill their deadline in time. So what we, but what we've been able to do with this project, I, I, I liken it to what, uh, and obviously in this fictional space, what Professor Xavier has done with um, um, cerebral, or actually let's call it, in, let's say it in Spanish, because it's actually a Spanish word, cerebro, which is Spanish for, for brain, right? Is that when this project was first announced in 2016, many other Puerto Rican artists in the industry started connecting and reaching out to me, because at no point in the history of comics here in the United States have there ever been a project that addressed or celebrated or directly spoke to the Puerto Rican experience here in the United States. And for those that don't know, for over a century, Puerto Rico has been a colony in the United States. Puerto Ricanos, and we're not just talking about Puerto Ricans like myself who live here in the United States. We're talking about Puerto Ricanos in the Caribbean. Those three million that are there, they're U.S. citizens. Um, little spoiler, if you watch Spider-Verse, there's, there's <laughs> one takeaway line that Philip Lord wrote that um, Luna Velez performed as the character of Rio Morales, where she says, um, she literally goes, um, Puerto Rico is part of America. We're not immigrants. So when this project kind of was announced, and it was announced in a big way, it was covered immediately by Washington Post, NBC News, CNN, and we didn't even have a book. 
many artists started reaching out to me because they wanted to connect to this project. Artists like uh, Gus, Gus Vasquez, the two that you mentioned, Chris Sotomayor, Will Rosado, uh, Rags Morales, uh, Chris Batista, uh, Felix Serrano, uh, George Perez, um, Tony Daniel, goodness, so many Puerto Rican artists, Emilio Lopez wanted to be a part in either a large way or a small way to this project. And many of them shared with me, they never in their career worked alongside other Puerto Ricans or worked with a Puerto Rican character. And, you know, like, may he rest in peace, George Perez once shared with me that when he was drawing um, uh, Wonder Woman, he visualized a Puerto Rican woman. That's why her hair was so curly and wavy when he was drawing Starfire. He was envisioning Puerto Rican bombshell um, Iris Chacon, who was kind of like this icon in the 70s into the early 80s. And that was a, a kind of like the extent of it. But there really was never this kind of like universe where we live now. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com, code GLOW. Ow, where... A, a project like mine has been sustainable and been publishing for seven years. And we're literally on the um, past the weekend of uh, the global box office explosion of Across the Spider-Verse, which is a, a project that's led by two Latino characters, um, actually three Latino characters. One, um, obviously the fictional character of Miles Morales, um, Miguel O'Hara and Rios Morales. This is, it's a different era right now but these characters these artists they really wanted to connect to our work because we were doing something completely different we were doing something that was in a positive way celebrating our culture celebrating our contributions as part of this u.s you know um, the latin community makes close to 20 percent of the united states and according to the recent usc annenberg inclusion initiative this study that was produced if you look at films specifically out of the 1300 films that have been produced in the last year alone only 5% of those roles actually are speaking roles for artists and actors that are Latin. And we're not saying that those are even lead roles. So in a, in a space that, and in a country that we have contributed to, and whether we're Puerto Ricans here in the United States or from Puerto Rico, we've been not only contributing as taxpaying citizens, but we've served in the military. Um, uh, when Puerto Ricans became US citizens, they served in World War I. And I consistently have served, and my my older brother served in the in the in the military as well, a decorated um sergeant. So we have been part of this country where we continue to um uh, support either as entrepreneurs, as storytellers, as artists, as educators, um to this kind of like beautiful mosaic that is this 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 nation. And I think in the space of 
comic book storytelling, uh, obviously in this international genre of storytelling, um, that a medium of storytelling that exists, we also have contributed a lot. I mean, as far back as, goodness, the 1930s when uh, Alejandro Chavez de Schomburg, I mean, Alejandro Schomburg de Chavez, who went by the name of Alex Schomburg, came from Puerto Rico with his two brothers and opened a, a, an art studio in the late 1930s in New York City. This was, this was an artist that would be one of the many artists after Jack Kirby to draw Captain America when it was still timely comics. We've been part of this industry. We've been part of this culture. We've been part of this um, medium for, for decades. And I think what, what La Borinquena did for many of the artists that we continue to work with is it was a validation. It was a yes. It was, thank you. This is fine. We're finally being recognized as, as contributors. To, to this culture that we love, this culture that we that we celebrate. Another artist I also want to acknowledge, I mean, there's so many, but the <laughs> one that just pops into my mind is Mike Hawthorne. Well, many people may not know is Puerto Rican because his last name is Hawthorne. And he just he's, he just recently um, uh, finished a run on, on Batman with Chip Zdarsky. And it's an incredible um, opportunity to work with artists like Mike because we actually collaborated on a mural with the Philadelphia organization Mural Arts and this three-story mural of La Borinquena was art directed by myself, but included the work of Mike Hawthorne and Emilio Lopez, both like celebrated mainstream Marvel, DC, Nickelodeon, IDW, goes down the list, artists in the um, in the comic book industry. All right. Okay. So I also noticed that you have an issue that includes Rosario Dawson. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, uh, so yeah, she's right there. <laughs> yeah. So how, how did that uh, come about? And was she excited to be a part of the of the oh, man. narrative there? That's a good that's a good question. So it goes back to 2016 when all of these artists started connecting and reaching out to me. One of these artists was Gus Vasquez, Gustavo Vasquez. I was art directing an idea for a cover, uh, a variant cover that he did. And Gus eventually for the first issue contributed um, um, breakdowns. Um, that we use for one of our artists that we uh, that I was mentoring. In these initial conversations that I had with Gus, he literally mentioned, "Hey, do you know my niece?" And I, you know, I was like, "What do you? Where's this coming from? I don't. I, I just met you. Why would I know your niece?" He said, well, <laughs> my niece is my niece is Rosario Dawson. And I was like, "How can she possibly be your niece? You're just you're younger than me, and she's about <laughs> your age." Then I said, "Well, okay, she's you're both Puerto Rican. That kind of makes sense, you know." <laughs> so. <laughs> He connects us and she immediately is connected to our work. And I also had the opportunity of literally kind of like one of these like chance meetings of literally like strangers in the night. But in this case, <laughs> we were on one of the staging streets for the Puerto Rican Day Parade in 2016 when La Borinquena was going to make her debut as someone who was cosplaying as her. It so happened that her float and our float, Rosario Dawson's float, was literally on the same staging street that ours was. So we were just literally waiting for our turn so that our floats could just turn that um, left and go up Fifth Avenue. And we had this kind of like exchange. And I was like, oh my gosh, you're Rosario. And I was like, this is my superhero, um, La Borinquena. And then fast forward, Gus Vasquez reconnects us. And then nine months after that first issue debuts, Hurricane Maria hits Puerto Rico. This devastating category five storm that left 4,645 people dead, left over 200,000 Puerto Ricanos displaced, and who are to this day part of the larger U.S. population because they've been um, relocated by FEMA and, or on their own moved to um, the United States. While I was producing what would be my first crossover with DC Comics, 
Rosario reached out to me and she said, I want to do whatever I can to be a part of this project, either use my platform to promote it, but I would love to contribute a story. Now, the arrangement that I had with many creators for this project from Frank Miller to Gail Simone to Greg Park to Bill Sienkiewicz was, here's the toy box. You have access to any DC character and they got to team up with La Borinquena. Rosario said, I just want a story about, I want to write a story just about La Borinquena. I don't really want to team her up with anyone. That would become the beginning of our friendship. Many, many years later, we still are connected. Um, she has co-hosted charity events for us. She has co-hosted signings for us at, at New York Comic Con. Outside of the work that we do with La Borinquena, she's executive producer on, on a film that debuts on the 21st of, of June on PBS called Below the Belt, a documentary film that addresses the, the disease that afflicts most women, endometriosis, because she herself suffers from endometriosis, so she serves as an executive producer on this film. My wife, Kyung Jun Miranda, who is the director of our uh, charitable efforts, our La Borinquena Grand Awards, also suffers from endometriosis. So that also connects us to Rosario. But when I was approached by the Natural Resources Defense Council, NRDC, to put a book together to kind of educate readers around renewable energy, they had the idea of asking a celebrity. A lot of the work that NRDC does is really connected to their relationships with various celebrities, um, either their charitable events or their campaigns, and they'll always attach a celebrity. I'm, I literally see Seth Meyers' face um, when, I'm, when I'm saying this because I was at an event that he hosted last year that was brilliant. It's one thing to watch him on a late night show. It's another thing to watch him <laughs> in, in person. And when they mentioned that to me, I came, I chimed in immediately and I was like, well, we already have a great relationship with Rosario Dawson. And unlike other celebrities, um, she already is committed to social justice. She's already committed to climate justice. She uses her platform to produce documentaries, to raise awareness. So it was an obvious fit. And we had such a great relationship with her that I knew how she spoke. I knew her voice. I, can, I literally always can hear her voice. And I've done that when I work with artists like John Leguizamo, when I edit their books and there's certain scenes that I have to tweak as an editor, I can get into these um, voices and, and apply them. So when I wrote the script for um, La Borinquena guest starring La, uh, Rosario Dawson, I knew how she was gonna speak. I knew how she would engage with these characters. So it was a natural fit. It was also um, an affirmation of her love of the character because soon after she connected with me when we were gonna work on this um, benefit book, uh, crossover with DC Comics, she also asked me to help her make a, rather at the time she said help her find, but it didn't exist. So I had to help her make a La Borinquena costume. So for Halloween in 2017, she literally dressed up as La Borinquena and there she was with her daughter walking up and down uh, Sunset Boulevard during Halloween as La Borinquena. So it's, it's a character that she's always connected to as an Afro-Latina herself, the character that she's always connected to because of her activism and her commitment to social justice. And uh, through our friendship over these years, it's given us the opportunity to have an ally that really understands what our work is about. And, you know, although she is a, a dear friend, I always associate and, and, and celebrate her as an ally to our work. So we're very fortunate to have the support of Rosario Dawson and, uh, and also to have her part of our universe. Literally, it kind of reminded me of those, you know, Scooby-Doo cartoons where every week there was a new celebrity that appeared in it. So, you know, there she is. Uh, okay, so I also saw that the the first issue of uh, Burn King uh, was put in the Smithsonian. I mean, gee, how big is that? <laughs> Jim and Crickets, that's gigantic, <laughs> right? 
so big that I didn't understand the gravity of it. And, and my wife, Kyung, was like, listen, we're doing a road trip. Packing up the car, we're taking the boys, we're going down to DC, and we're going to see this comic book in person. And I was like, but it's just a comic book, and it's just, uh, it's just on, you know, and, and this little, this. Like, she was like, look, I don't care how small or big this is to you, this is a moment for our family. And you know, she was right. She's always right. And <laughs> there we were at the National Museum of American History, and yeah, it was formally added to the collection, but they also created a small exhibit to kind of like commemorate it. And they were exhibiting it alongside all the other comic books that are part of their collection. And there is La Boringueña in front of my eyes behind this glass case next to the Avengers, next to Detective Comics, next to Action Comics, these comics that were from the 30s, 40s, 70s. And I just couldn't control myself. I just started crying because it, just, it was just so incredibly unbelievable that a book that I produced was now part of historical record. You know, I had this kind of like uh, a flashback to the end of Indiana Jones, uh, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, when they had these gigantic, you know, uh, crates, and that's where the Ark of the Covenant ends up. But I literally thought to myself, that book is in there now too. It's, it's right there in that, in, that, in that collection, you know, and it's, and then, you know, and that opened us up to an ongoing uh, incredible relationship with the Smithsonian because many people who may not be aware, Smithsonian's are, these are the federal uh, museums. Um, our tax money literally goes into these museums. And I do emphasize museums around the Great Mall in Washington, D.C. There are close to 20 different museums. And the uh, National Museum of American History is one of these museums. So we've been approached by many other um, museums that are a part of the Smithsonian um, network. Uh, the American Indian Museum, the Asian Pacific American Center, the Latino Museum have all um, in one way or another supported our work through grants, through um, exhibitions, through advocacy, through promotion. Our books are sold at the Smithsonian Bookstore. Our um, books are in the uh, um, Molina Family Institute Gallery in the National Museum of American History. Um, it's just amazing that this project is now part of this institution. I mean, our book was also like right next to Chris Evans' Captain America Shield. I mean, I literally saw a scene <laughs> out of like Falcon and the Winter Soldier. I kept thinking Anthony Mackie was going to come by and try to take the shield out of the glass case. You know? <laughs> so it's, it's, it's incredible to know that something that I created that completely was funded by my own resources um, is where it is now. And it's not only... Um, you know, being collected into this kind of um, oversized hardcover uh, edition, but it's still part of historical record as well. That's, not, I mean, that's amazing. Uh, okay, so like I said, you mentioned you're, uh, you're partnering with Zoop for your campaign, which uh, I believe starts on June 7th. Uh, how did you decide to partner with Zoop? That was all because of my friend, Des Taylor. Des Taylor is a uh, London-based artist who has been acquainted with me for many years. He is also like one of my, I have to call him like one of my biggest allies and champions. Every time there's an opportunity, whether he's in Dubai or whether he's here in the States, he always thinks of me and he says, oh, I've got to introduce these, these chaps to my, to my, to my bloke, Edgardo, you know, you know? And, uh, and he always does that. And he connected me to, to, to Jordan and Eric at Zoop. When before they even had um this this company, they actually used to have a, a digital comic book platform that was incredibly innovative. 
um, unfortunately, that business didn't um, sustain itself, but then they did a, 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 an incredible pivot towards developing Zoop, which is an incredible model for independent creators such as myself, right? Or just creators in general in the comic book industry, because if you're a successful artist like Jorge Molina, as prolific as he is, the reality is he's also a freelance artist. So he doesn't, he's not Jorge Molina um, incorporated and he has this kind of like infrastructure to do fulfillment, distribution, marketing, et cetera. Zoop set up our interviews. Zoop will, as uh, as an independent creator, handle a lot of the overhead for me on, in the infrastructure. They'll handle distribution. They'll handle, handle order fulfillment. They'll handle um, warehousing. They'll handle print production. Something that as a small studio myself, I typically, and on my own, so it's it's a it's a it's a significant relief to see that they're there as allies and as and as partners, and um, you know their commission is is a little more than your typical crowdfunding campaign, but I gladly allow it because they support in such a way. These crowdfunding campaigns, I think many of us have seen these horror stories that are made into like kind of like memes or like viral videos where artists are overwhelmed when they realize they've reached all these goals and like, oh my gosh, I now have to fulfill these promises. I have to pack all these envelopes. I got to print more t-shirts or print print posters. Oh my gosh, I don't have any money left. I spent all my money on actually all these <laughs> like, you know, fulfillments uh, and, and perks that I was offering. And what Zoop does with Jordan and Eric do, they, they keep the project grounded. They really keep it um, um, realistic. And they also, because they have relationships with a lot of print houses, both here in the United States and internationally, they know how to price a project for a creator so that it's it has attainable and real goals. And that's something that's incredible. And aside from that, they really believe in our work in the space of philanthropy, and they're actually donating a, a portion of their commission towards our charitable work, which is in incredible that they offered that and that they're actually going to do that. So it's exciting because one of the things that has been um, incredible about our work with La Borinquena over these seven years, uh, we've published various um, graphic novels, is how well the book has been received by academic institutions across the United States. Well, quite honestly, across the world, because um, recently uh, French publisher Atier published a textbook with a chapter dedicated to Puerto Rico that features La Borinquena. So students internationally are learning about La Borinquena and are reading our graphic novels, but they're graphic novels, which are paperbacks. So with many little hands after a lot of handling, you know, they, they fall apart. Most comic book readers are not going to put it in a, you know, a mylar sleeve and then put it in a long box. They're not going to do that. They're going to roll it up, smack their classmate across the head, open it up again, read it, or throw it in their backpack with their lunchbox, you know? So the idea of making a hardcover is very viable. You know, it's a hardcover book. It's going to be a part of a, a, a library's collection and it will afford itself to more readers. And by collecting all of our graphic novels, you know, readers have the opportunity of learning this entire arc. You know, I always say that right now is the perfect time to learn about La Borinquena. I've been writing this series for seven years. At one point, there was a cliffhanger. And it was three years between those two books. Goodness, you know, I can't believe that it was like so much time between these two books. But now the book is a complete story, a complete story arc. And it's close to 300 pages of, of beautiful, colorful, sequential art and a complete story that connects readers to a real place, a real people, a real culture. And I'm excited about the opportunity. You know, I have many, many hardcovers in my in my <laughs> library. My favorite one is actually the 
the um, I was about to call it a Criterion edition. I'm thinking DVDs, but it's the uh, deluxe. It was um, I forget the, the the title, but it was Darwin Cook's New Frontier, and they packaged it in a slip case, and it's about like 13, 14 inches tall. I wanted to do a slip case, and this is to tell you how cool <laughs> and smart Jordan and Eric are at Zoom. They said, "We know you want to do a slip case, but a slip case." It's going to cost this much more. And then we're going to have to have a higher goal or a higher price point for the book. So I acquiesced and I took the slipcase off, you know, but that's always was my dream. I just love the idea. I'm, 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 I'm old school. I love having books on, on a shelf and the idea of like these collectible books, they're, they're limited edition. And, you know, the, the, the little, but the tassel, oh my gosh, you know, the little, the little <laughs> ribbon that, 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 that serves as a bookmark. But anyway, this is something I'm excited about. It is going to be oversized. A typical comic book is about just under seven inches by 10 inches. This is going to be eight by 12 inches. So it's, it's a lot larger than a typical comic book. It's a hardcover book, beautiful rendered artwork by Angel Jesus Calon, who made his debut in DC um, last fall. So we're very excited about that. And he donated this artwork, which is incredibly like, wow, for us that so many artists. And, you know, he's joining... A, a long list of artists who have supported our work through their donated artwork. Artists like Bill Sienkiewicz, Tony Daniel, Frank Miller, George Perez, Carlos Pacheco, uh, so many artists, Dennis Cowan, Ken Lashley, who have donated original art because they truly believe in our work, uh, truly feel that their art and their interpretation of our character kind of like, well, amplifies the work that they were doing. And it does. And it does. I have like an image in my head of Mike Allred when he created his interpretation of La Kenya. I mean, there's so many artists that have interpreted and donated their art. It's it's in, it's it's incredible as a fan of comics, as a as a reader of comics, to know that so many of these um, successful artists in their own right really support and believe our work. It's it's humbling. It truly is. It really is. Excellent. Okay, so uh, you know, you briefly mentioned uh, the La Kenya. Grant awards that some of your proceeds are going toward. When did that foundation start, and what do the what do those grants do? Um, in when put in use? So that program was started by my wife and business partner Kyung Jun Miranda. When we teamed up with DC Comics, we knew that this was going to be a big book, and it was. It was the number one bestseller on Amazon.com for four months straight. It was a bestseller with incredible support from Diamond comic distributors. They, they were exceptional in their support, giving us full page ads, taking a cut on their commission for this book, really pushing this in, um, obviously we know about local comic book shops, but Diamond was very, very, very pivotal in getting our books in retailers, brick and mortar retailers like Target, like Barnes and Noble, uh, like Walgreens. And this book was such a commercial success that Kyung had the vision to recognize that we should use this money that we raised as a fund to create a micro-grant program. Typically, what many people do in time of crisis is they come together immediately, they raise money, and because of the infrastructure of these corporate nonprofits, they are the most visible ones. Their marketing and advertising campaigns are immediately in your face, they're immediately in front of you, and you click or you call, and you cut a check and dare. Her vision, Kyung's vision for this was, we don't know we'll have another opportunity like this. There are so many local grassroots organizations that are immediately connected to people who were affected by this natural disaster. 
let's do our part. Let's research. Let's vet these organizations. Let's invite them to apply for our grant. But also let's have this kind of like demystified, decolonized approach to philanthropy, meaning that we're not going to create stipulations. You need to do this, 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 this to get this money. It was more like, what do you want to do? What are you, what are you already doing? What can we do to amplify what you're already doing? And when you work with these local grassroots organizations and you give them a five or $10,000 grant, they really know how to make that work. They really know how to make that stretch. Organizations like El Departamento de la Comida, the Department of Food, organizations like Correlations, uh, uh, the Boys and Girls Clubs of, of Puerto Rico, of Corredor Afro, all of these institutions were grassroots organizations. The Department of Food, which is actually a sustainable farming program, an educational program, used the funds that we gave them to buy tools, to loan to farmers, to create a seed exchange program, to actually create their own micro grant program. And they actually awarded smaller grants to farmers. This type of transformative work was something that inspired us because we started recognizing early on that there lies the true heroism. These local grassroots organizations who shared with me, many of them were very grateful that we awarded them these grants because they say that, you know, these larger corporate nonprofits, they get all the funding and they don't have the bandwidth, these small organizations to compete with these larger institutions. And we seek out these organizations and we award them grants. And, and we're fully transparent. If you go to our website, la-bodingcana.com, you will not only see the list of organizations that we have supported over these many years, but you have contact information. And I encourage many people to visit our website to learn about these organizations. Because of this work that we've done, we've used our platform, whether we're doing interviews or whether we're doing um, collaborations, to amplify the work that they're doing, to connect other organizations to each other. So not only do we award these microgrants to these local grassroots organizations, but we provide forums where these organizations can learn of each other's work and also form their own collaborations that go beyond what we're able to um, fund. And I think that's one of the things that sets us apart. You know, uh, philanthropy, charity work is not an afterthought for us. It's part of the book. It's part of the story. It's part of the printing. It goes into that mixture of CMYK that prints our comic books. So very good. Okay, so my second to last question for you, and I, I told you when we started before we uh, started here that I had a hypothetical question for you. Some people can jump right in. Some people have to think about it. But you know, you've accomplished so much in the way of promoting and emphasizing cultural history and narratives of Puerto Rico. If you had to pick maybe one or two of your top three or top maybe two or three of your top accomplishments that nurture that goal, what would they be? I think the grants program, that honestly is something that I'm incredibly inspired by every day. When we have the opportunity to create these collaborations that can bring these resources in, you know, it always happens because there's someone on the other side of that collaborations that inherently sees the value in our work. In the case of DC Comics, that was Dan DiDio. He was our champion. He really did believe in what we were doing. Why? Because Dan DiDio had a personal connection to Puerto Rico because of his wife, Leilani. He frequently visited Puerto Rico. He frequently did signings at local comic shops in Puerto Rico. He valued and loved Puerto Rico. And when this cataclysmic event affected Puerto Rico, he was literally online at the New York Comic Con at my table waiting 45 minutes to talk to me. 
and he had on his World League baseball cap of the Puerto Rico um, team. And he came to me, and out of that conversation, it was kind of that let them say no moment for me. And I said, <laughs> let's have a team up. I think La Borinquena should team up with the entire DC universe, and let us let me bring them to Puerto Rico and these stories, not only to have a book that serves as a, as a fundraising vehicle, but that also serves in the space of storytelling as an opportunity to educate and to share. Because in the collective canon of these characters over close to a century, never once had their stories brought them to Puerto Rico. And this was an amazing opportunity. And I think that's really what I'm the most connected to and most um, inspired by. And I'm very grateful to my wife and partner, Kyung Jun Miranda, for having the vision to create this program, to continue to lead this program, to ha come up with innovative ideas, to have this program uh, remain sustainable. Um, the fact that over the course of these many years that we've been publishing La Borinquena, these seven years, we've raised and donated $200,000 in microgrants. That's something that has to really be emphasized. We come from a place of philanthropy that wasn't advised by a PR firm who was telling us, you know, this public image you guys got, you look too rich, a little too greedy. We need to soften it up. It's quite the opposite. We're not rich. We're working middle-class artists who work out of our small apartment and, and studio space here in Brooklyn who truly believe that to really make transformative change, we have to invest in charity. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm old school. I grew up watching PBS and I love the PBS model of donate now and get this tote bag, get this <laughs> mug, get this uh, hat, you know, and, and and I, I was like, that's such a great model because to just simply say, you know, jiggle your your cat your 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 cup and say put some money in this, but if you actually have something tangible, think about how that works. I just bought this Laborinquena hat. I just bought this Laborinquena comic book. If I'm reading this, if this is on my coffee table, if this is if I'm at a coffee shop and somebody asks me about that book, I can tell them about the characters, but I can also say. Yeah, and I purchased this book, and this is actually supporting charity work in Puerto Rico. That's something that nobody can really say about their, their publications. And, and a lot of it is a testament of these collaborations, collaborations like those with DC Comics, with NRDC, with Rosario Dawson. Rosario Dawson, she gave us permission to use her likeness for free. DC Comics gave us permission to use their entire toy box, just like Neil Adams says, you know, you get to play with them, but you got to put them back where you found them, you know, <laughs> they let us use them. And we had access to their entire catalog of, of characters. I mean, that's unheard of. All of their exclusive artists, as long as they were available to work with us, worked with us. And at the time, Frank Miller was an exclusive artist at, at um, DC. And he was like, I want to work with these guys. I want to create my own interpretation of La Kenya. And that, to me, is something that, that inspires me. And I hope will also open up other opportunities. Even this crowdfunding campaign, honestly, this collaboration with Zoop, it's connected to our charity work because they see the value in our charity work and on their own, both Jordan and Eric at Zoop were like, we're going to donate um, to, to your work. So everyone who, you know, contributes to this crowdfunding campaign, when you um, pledge or pre-order our book, you're supporting our charitable work. You know, we even, Jordan even came up with this, Jordan and Eric, both of them came up with this great idea, the buy one, donate one. Um, if you choose to buy two books, 
one will come to you and one will be put inside of a collection that will eventually find itself in the hands of a public library in Puerto Rico. That's, that's incredible. And that was their idea as well. And it's something that I'm excited about. I really hope that we have a successful campaign so that more people can um, read our stories, uh, learn about Puerto Rico, learn about this superhero universe that we developed, but more importantly, help share this work and help continue our um, philanthropic work. Excellent. Okay, so before I let you go, I want to give you uh, a chance to, you know, because we've talked about your Zoom campaign, if you have any other projects that you want to discuss or can discuss, uh, I want to give you that opportunity. Well, another one of our collaborations that we're really excited about is uh, with Boss Fight Studio. Boss Fight Studio is a toy company that's been around for some years now. They've worked with properties like everything from Flash Gordon to Popeyes to Umbrella Academy, and we have an action figure line that's coming out this fall that we're incredibly excited about. And similar to uh, our campaign with Zoop, they're also donating a portion of the proceeds to our uh, continued charity work. But these are highly functional, highly articulate um, action figures that are um, coming out. So I'm a huge toy collector. So I'm just super excited to have these characters uh, on my shelf as well. And then we just recently launched a, a new spinoff series out of our La Bonicena universe, which is Oro. El Coquirodado is a new superhero that we're super excited about. Um, he has his own um, series. Uh, one of the ideas that we have is that in between each one of our La Borinquena graphic novels, we're going to drop single issues for our spinoff characters. And Odo is the first superhero that we spun off. And this comic book is not going to be collected in the hardcover edition, but it's available now off of our website. And uh, the artist that actually did the cover, Christian Muñiz Torres, is a young artist who just graduated from Parsons and this is his first published work. Part of the model that we've created with our studio is to not only connect readers to our um, culture and heritage in Puerto Rico and, and support our philanthropic work, but to also support and give opportunities to young artists. And Cristian is one of these such artists that we uh, support and believe in. Fantastic. Well, I, I, I gotta tell you, this has been great. And, uh, we're going to wish you the very best in your Zoom campaign. Uh, let me ask you a quick question: Do you are you going to have a signed edition available yes. on Zoom? I think okay. we are. I think I think I, we might actually sign all of them. I think I might oh. actually sign all of them. Yeah, because I think that's. Okay, uh, I'm. I don't. I'm, I don't. I don't. I don't put value on my signature. If somebody wants me to sign it, then I'm more than happy to give that away. <laughs> uh, well, see, well, I'm there because I'm all about the signed edition. So, uh, awesome. so that works for me. All right. Well, I appreciate it, and like I said, we'll be following your campaign very closely, and hopefully, we get to talk to you again in the future. Look forward to it. Thank you so much for your time and thank you for having me on your show. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to GVN's Talking Comics. Please come back again. Talking Comics is a production of Geek Vibes Nation. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.